Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the author, designer, and educator, David Gisson. I've been an admirer of Gisson's work since reading a book of his called Subnatures, Architecture's Other Environments, which was published in 2009 and explored and elevated the undesirable byproducts of urbanization. With chapters on subjects like exhaust, dust, mud, and weeds, it opened up for me this other type of nature that was almost entirely unacknowledged in architectural theory and practice. He followed Subnatures in 2014 with a book called Manhattan Atmospheres, which uncovers an alternative environmental history of New York's urban interiors. And I loved this book for the same reason I loved Subnatures. It took into account these quite mundane and often aberrant spaces and experiences in order to trace what really felt like new strands of architectural history. I was excited to learn late last year then that Gissen had just finished a new book, this time focusing on disability in architecture. It made sense that he was writing about disability because like the subjects he tackled before, it's as fundamental to our understanding of architecture as it is overlooked. And yet I had no idea that Gissen himself is disabled. He's a below the hip amputee having survived pediatric bone cancer. And while he's explained elsewhere how formative this experience was for him and how much of his work has in different ways, a subtext of disability, his new book is his first to address the topic so directly and personally. To me, it seemed like the first time that Gisson was himself identifying as a disabled person in his writing, and more specifically as a disabled historian of architecture. And in our conversation, we talk about the implications of his lived experience of disability on his reading of architectural history and his speculations on the future of practice and construction as a result. Gisson is currently professor of architecture and urban history at the Parsons School of Design in New York which is where I reached him via Zoom in March of 2023. Before we get started, it's worth noting that David will be speaking in London during the first week of June at the Mellon Center, the London Festival of Architecture, and the Bartlett. You can check their websites for more details. All right, now on to my interview with David Gisson, where I started the conversation by asking him why now was the time to begin writing so directly from his own experience. I've been writing about being a disabled person since I've been a disabled person. So I've been writing, I wrote about my experiences as a cancer survivor. Um, <clears throat> and then as an amputee, um, a few years after I, I was, um, I was in the hospital receiving chemotherapy beginning of my high school years and then college, I wrote about it. Graduate school, I made projects about it. And I used to have a, um, a blog where I writ, wrote a few po- posts about this, but they just, I mean, it was very clear that there wasn't much of an audience for this work, even though people um, within disability studies had connected to me or reached out to me to talk to me about that work. But in architecture, it was just, I would say there's very little audience for it. So I think the, I think I was always writing about this. It was just nobody was listening. I, my, in terms of the earlier work that I did, I was, when I was a curator about um, 20 years ago, I was very involved then in discussions around sustainable architecture. <clears throat> Not that I was necessarily 
um, a kind of sounding board or um, representative of that particular approach, but it was it was something that as a, at the museum I was working for, we were very interested in exploring. And I found the discussions around it very alienating, actually. Um, the emphasis on like biocapacity and biofunctionalism, I felt extraordinarily alienating. Now, I think one of the reasons that I found it so alienating is because I just don't relate to that physically or um, physiologically or, or intellectually as being a value in and of itself, because I have had to spend almost the entirety, or really the entirety of my adult life contending with my incapacities. So my book, Subnature, while it wasn't explicitly about um, disability in the way that we frame that as an identity, it was absolutely about um, nature or, or let's say nature material that has no obvious biophysical functionality, no clear um, physiological functioning, and in many cases would be seen as um, weak and sort of disturbing and disfigured. Um, and then in terms of my book, Manhattan Atmospheres, I mean, that book, that book is sort of like a psychological drama in a way. So that book is about um, New York City between the 1970s and 1980s and the emergence of a kind of interior that forms a space of protection. And again, I didn't write about this in the book, but um, that book is absolutely about my experience being a, being um a cancer, you know, a pediatric cancer patient in New York City at that particular time. And the, with the exception of one chapter, all of those spaces were ones that I moved in and through, um, you know, for all kinds of different reasons that have nothing to do with my illness and everything to do with my illness. So that even, even that book, which seems to have nothing to do with me as a disabled person, has themes within it about ideas about health and physical support and maintenance that completely moves through the book. So and beginning in around 2012 or 2013, I began to experiment with writing more explicitly about my experiences as a disabled person and connecting them to themes in my work. And I started to notice that um, on the one hand, there was more of an audience for that work. Um, Bryony, Bryony Roberts, for example, commissioned an essay for me. She's very interested in these topics and um, for an issue she did at Log Magazine. And so that was really important. And the response to that was, was really good that the work I did with her was very much exploring ideas about architectural history, disability, and reconstruction. So then following that, um, again, I started dabbling a little bit more, seeing if I felt comfortable writing about this, but also if I felt comfortable talking about this. I mean, I think a big um, aspect of this turn towards like self-identification architecture is very generational. You know, like people that are 10, 15, 20 years younger than me feel much more comfortable doing that than people my age. And so, um, again, an audience began to build. And then I thought maybe there was a book project. And I approached my publisher that I'd worked with for a long time and said, I, I want to try this out. I don't know if I entirely feel comfortable writing about this, but I want to, you know, like any writer, I want to see what it feels like to write about this topic. And so I really enjoyed it. And I was enjoying talking about it more and more, this topic especially if I can talk about it on my own terms, not about themes of access and improving the functionality spaces. So then that book project was well underway by 2018. It became the architecture of disability. And then the pandemic has resulted in, at least in the context of which I operate in, in the United States and New York City, in which you know, it was a mass disabling event, so to speak. And I'm only laughing because that language sounds... Um, so official, but um, you know, in, in um, informal polls of Americans, one out of 
one out of three Americans now identifies as having an impairment of some sort. That's a very significant shift. Um, so I think people care about this topic because they don't have a choice. I'm curious to know what it was like for you as an amputee in a school of architecture as a student at the time. It must have been so formative for you to be in that physical state, but also in a state of mind where you're intensely aware of issues of form and aesthetics, as well as access and movement and proprioception and ergonomics. Like all of these topics are so integral to architecture and you're being exposed to them at the same time that your body is undergoing this fundamental shift. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, you know, I, I, um, I didn't have the benefit of psychotherapy back then, but I was looking through my sketchbook from that time, not too long ago. And there's all these, you know, there's all these drawings in them of like um, classical sculptures that were, you know, badly battered and missing limbs and things. So obviously this was, you know, these kinds of things were on my mind or ideas about, I don't know if I was thinking about ideas about physical beauty, ironically enough, or coincidentally enough, the um, aesthetic that was the rage at that time, this would be about 1990, 1991, was deconstruction. So, you know, it's sort of, um, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's a perfect kind of architectural metaphor for um, my own physical experiences and also my state. Yeah, that experience was so intense. And I ultimately decided two months after they removed the cast to have an amputation because I just couldn't, it was just not my, you know, the ability to salvage my leg was just not possible, I thought, or I was unwilling to go through an experience like that again. So about two months after that experience was over, I decided to have an amputation. And, um, and, and a strange, I, I only want to mention this in case somebody's listening who's going through something like this, you know, is that as counterintuitive as it is, and this also relates to your question, giving up on the idea of physical integrity or my own ideas of like what a, my own attractive body would be really liberated me. And being an amputee enabled me to live a more normal life. I know it sounds completely counterintuitive, but I was able to wear artificial limbs. I was able to sit upright. I was able to get out of that cast and I was able to live something closer to the life that I wanted to live for myself, which was not spending time in a hospital. Um, and I know, um, for example, Jordan Whitewood Neal, who's in Britain, had a very similar experience um, to mine in making very similar decisions. He's also an architect. Um, so it's really important for people to hear this, that um, I think particularly for men, you know, young men, young women, you know, um, that like that undergoing or, or, or dealing with these very um, intense decisions about um, your body and the kind of medical choice you have to make about it, that, um, that they're actually very liberating. You know? yeah. So I want to focus now on disability and architecture, the book, and talk about what seems like um, a central frustration that you've had with the way people talk and think about disability in the context of the built environment, which in a way was also a kind of catalyst for the writing of the book itself. And that's a frustration with this idea of functionalism. Can you, can you just unpack what you mean by that? First of all, what is a functionalist view of disability? And why is it problematic that that is um, typically the only way in which we understand 
disability in um, in architecture and design? Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that question. It, um, it's always easier to write about these things than to explain them, you know, with language, you know, vocally. But I'll give it a shot. Um, okay. So I think they. I think one of the ways that um, disability is defined is um, by the um, the lack of function that um, is apparent in someone's body or physiology or mind. So for example, let's say you have a functionalist um, interpretation of the human body. So let's say you believe hands are intended to grip things. That's what a hand does. Now, if I can't grip something with my hand, from that viewpoint, I have a disability in my hand because my hand can't grip. But it's it's based on the premise that um, we begin with the idea that that hands and feet and legs and other th- eyes and ears, they should do certain things. And if they don't do that thing, it's um, uh, there's a problem that that needs to be fixed or addressed in some way. Um, so that's one way to think about a functionalist perspective of the body, which I think is and disability, which is very crude. At the same time, a lot of the um, approaches to um, to dealing or addressing disability in architecture are based on that functionalist viewpoint. So the question is, well, if somebody doesn't have the range of motion of a, of a normal person, like when they're sitting in a wheelchair, what is their range of motion? So you see these diagrams that are very typical and designed for disabled people that show typically show a man sitting in a wheelchair and moving their har- arms around in a wheelchair and showing the range of motion, showing what they can do. So it's still based upon a kind of functionalist idea of like a disabled person is, is you know, about disability in architecture. Disability is a problem of a, of a person who lacks certain kinds of functionality in their limbs, typically, it can also be their mind, obviously, but most architects deal with um, the problems of limbs and torso, physique and range of motion. And then how can we address that? We can make things lower, we can make things higher, we can make things wider, we can make things less stepped. And so my problem is, first of all, with the definition of disability um, um, that all of this is founded on. Like, I don't, I think of myself as inhabiting three different kinds of bodies that all do different things, depending upon the situation. When I'm not wearing my leg, I'm an amputee and I can hop, I can move around in ways that somebody with two legs can't and 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 never will be able to because they have two legs. When I wear my prosthetic, I because prosthetics are designed by people who believe in the belief system I just told you, it makes me appear as a more kind of normative, biomechanically normative person. But also when I walk around on crutches or I use a chair, I have a completely different physiology. None of these are problems. They're just different ways in which I experience um, you know, me or and, the, and being an amputee. Um, so that's one problem I have with it. The other is, you know, as we know, architecture isn't just a, a discipline that deals with function and the problems of the present. Architecture is a, a discipline that deals with historical problems. Architecture is a discipline that deals with ideas about um, the design and perception of buildings. And architecture is a problem, a field that deals with ideas about construction and tectonics, among many, many other urbanization. And, and that entire kind of um, technique or method through which disability typically appears in architecture as a problem of functionality and task completion and biomechanics can address any of the other things that I just mentioned. And so not only am I critical of the way that disability has been dealt with as a, as a kind of problem of function in architecture, but I'm also critical of the way that it's dealt with as a problem of contemporary inhabitants of space that need to make their, one needs to make their lives easier. 
I think disabled people can project their lives back in history to ideas about monumentality and forward into ideas about um, the future of construction among all the kinds of different um, topics dealt with in the book. Mm -hmm. So there's so many other dimensions beyond the merely functional that you want to focus on as a historian and as a theorist and as a designer yourself. Um, I wonder if we could touch on what you've identified as, uh, at least in the book, as the preservation of disability, um, with a focus specifically on an experience you recount in the book about walking up to the Acropolis along a specific path. It's a path designed by the the landscape architect uh, Picionis. Mm-hmm. It seemed like that was in some way a formative experience for you. Certain ideas began to coalesce on that walk. Could you could you bring me back to that moment in particular? Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, anybody <laughs> who went to architecture school in the in the eighties and nineties, like I did, was told, you know, all these people in the history of architecture have walked up to the top of the Acropolis, and it was you know, a, um, a formative experience in their development as an architect, you know, first, you know, the, the ancient Greeks, <laughs> then, you know, jumped forward, uh, you know, you know, 2200 years, Julien David Loire, the very famous French architectural educator, Stuart and Rivette, the British um, uh, quasi-architect archaeologists, Le Corbusier, Alto, Louis Kahn, Vincent Scully, like, you know, and the last, you know, Vincent Scully, who I was a TA for, used to recount climbing up there for the first time. And, you know, Kenneth Frampton, you know, could go on and on and on. Um, Johanny Palasma, like who hasn't written, or, you know, what man hasn't written about climbing up to the Acropolis and, you know, what a virile experience it was for them, you know, getting their <laughs> body up there. So little me climbed up the office or tried to. Anyway, so um, so, I, so I was there. Of course, you think about all that. And that's the whole reason I'm there in the first place, because you read about that. Like, you know, it's not, you know, speaking personally, I don't find it the most exciting or interesting complex of ruins that I've ever been to in my life. Or even really, you know, I don't want to be too provocative. I don't even think the site is that particularly interesting. But of course, I had to make this climb because it doesn't happen. So anyway, so I walked up the site. And Demetrius... Picionis's um, design for the kind of rambling path that he designed in the late 1950s to to rise to the top of the Acropolis is so celebrated in people's writing about the Acropolis, you know, in the post-war period. I found it so offensive on so many different levels. First of all, he he actually increased the um, steepness of the path compared to the way the um, paths that survived from the Ottoman era brought you into the site. Um, so that, I thought that was odd. And then also he built in this entire aesthetic of ruin into it as if to suggest that the site's contemporary appearance was the result of time versus very strategic and purposeful choices by people that want to recover a very specific history at the Acropolis and erase another history, particularly the history of Ottoman transformation of the site. So I went up that and I was, and that kind of, I mean, that made me angry walking up that path. And then you go to the museum and then, you know, later, um, and then you learn that the Acropolis originally had these very gently sloped ramps um, that were used to reach the top. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Like, why doesn't anybody 
why didn't they, you know, they've been reconstructing the whole site to look like it did 2,500 years ago. Like, why, why is that off the menu, so to speak? Um, and the reason is because it would interfere with the larger ideological idea of the site that the, that the site's appearance has to do with time and not choices because to build those rooms would be so, you know, it would it would so it would be such an obvious reconstruction reconstruction of a particular time that would be outside the aesthetics of ruins. Now, by the way, I'm not suggesting they rebuild the ramps, but I'm just saying that um, the particular experience of walking up the Acropolis is 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 staged. And my larger point with it, then that I make in the chapter in the book, is that it builds in the idea that physical capacity and historical knowledge are one and the same in our discipline. And that's something that people obviously believed. All the people that recounted their own and previous people's experience of going to the top of the Acropolis and the physical effort that they made to get there. But also the way that we think about historians doing work, not just you know, on a site, but you know, the way they draw knowledge of the past, that there's this idea that it's a that physical and mental intensity are somehow prerequisites for doing serious historical work. And I think that's ridiculous. And um, but unfortunately, it's an idea that um, is everywhere in our discipline, you know, like it extends from field trips we take students on, you know, like we have to from, you know, nine in the morning until nine at night, we have to be exploring buildings and, you know, and pushing our bodies to the limit and, you know, walking miles and miles and miles every day to understand a historical site or to understand the history of a particular period or the architectural history of a city. Or <clears throat> I remember when I was putting the book together, a mentor of mine actually posted this picture of himself leading a group of his students and former students um, on a trip in, um, I think in the Middle East, but I'm not exactly sure where it was in which they were climbing boulders and things to like, you know, explore our, the architectural past. And I thought, well, I know a lot of people like me that can't do that. So does that mean that I'm not a serious historian? Hmm. So, so yeah, so that experience was a trigger of something that um, was a, 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 a that, that that put together some thoughts I've had for a long time, but um, I think are ones that a reader, for example, can relate to because it's such a famous site, and they hmm. probably think they know it so well or know these stories pretty well. You mentioned these terms like virility. <laughs> You're also describing very athletic. Um, kind of physical, the, the kind of athleticism around the ascent to the Acropolis and and these impressive kind of exuberant feats of knowledge acquisition as well. And I think, I mean, it brings me to this section on nature in the book, which is where we come across for the first time, I think, this term biocapacity. And I think that's a good place to go to next, because there are questions you ask in that chapter about whether and how we can start to imagine forms of urban nature that are open to ideas of weakness. First, let me thank you for doing such a deep reading of this book. I really appreciate it. Um, but also, let me connect it to one of your questions before. So the, the preservation of disability in the context of nature, the conservation of disability, would simply make a place for weakness within our understanding of the past and of the value of nature, okay? Um, so in terms of the latter question at the Acropolis or, or any historic site, the question is how can an understanding of a site or the past emerge through incapacity as much as capacity? Um, and that would involve having actual 
disabled people be involved in determining ideas about how we preserve the past, but also taking in mind the experiences of people that um, do not necessarily see themselves as virile, young, um, um, you know, um, athletes that can, you know, explore sites with um, physical intensity. Okay, so in terms of nature, um, topic of nature in the book, and it relates to some things you brought before about subnature. So I went to school for my PhD in a in England, actually, in the UK, in a kind of Marxist, you know, very neo-Marxist, I guess you'd say, academic context, um, uh, with a lot of um, mentors from the field of geography, urban geography in particular, which interests me at the time. And within all that writing, a, lot, a theme that emerges is that nature is the sort of base to the, how we think of ourselves, both um, um, as urban subjects, but also um, in terms of how we think about urbanization, like a very Marxist idea that um, the nature we produce or valorize is very much a, a reflection of how we imagine and think about human society and its future. So um, in the book, one of the, um, well, not just in the book, you know, in, in my work, um, one of the themes that's really central, and I brought this up earlier, is how nature and architecture typically, but also urbanism, environmentalism, is often valued insofar as that it has some kind of functional role. Like trees are good because they absorb carbon. Oysters are good because they clean water. You know, um, I could go on and on with examples, but you, you probably get the point. Um, and so the question is if, you know, where can we make a space or where can we value um, ideas of incapacity in nature? Like, is, is nature only valuable if it performs particular functional feats? We're back to the issue of function. Or is there a possibility for us to make some kind of um, place for nature that's that has incapacities or even is disfigured? Now, the reason I think that's so important is, is not just because, um, you know, the, the way that it makes us think as architects, but getting back to the idea that the nature we create is the way we imagine um, you know, our human society and its future, is that today, via um, tools such as CRISPR and others, um, other genetic modification tools, we now have the possibility to remove um, the, um, the features or experiences of impairment and disability from natural history, right? We can edit out deafness from human beings. We can eliminate certain features that have been an aspect of species for you know, hundreds of thousands, if not half a million years that are um, impairments or disfigurements. And all of this is seen as good. And so the, the possibility that we can write disability out of natural history is, um, or impairment out of natural history is really disturbing to me because it suggests that people like myself or experiences or people that are deaf or blind, that somehow um, we become like orphans of natural history, right? And so making the conservation of disability, um, which is uh, something that I write about, but is originally an idea of uh, Rosemary Garland Thompson's, tries to understand like what would the bioethics be that can make a space for disability to have a future, not just in the human world, but in the natural world as well, right? So a very easy, if this all this is very confusing, a very easy way to understand this is if you were a scientist who was trying to de-extinct a mastodon and your machinations of doing this gave birth to a mastodon that had a, a disfigured back right leg, 
would that creature be destroyed because it was not representation, not representational of what scientists want a mastodon to be? Or do we accept that as a feature of, of nature and of um, biology and physiology that not, not everybody's born, you know, in some kind of image that human beings have of what natural perfection might be. So I think all of this is really important. Yeah. It's interesting, this experience or this uh, characterization of orphanhood that you bring up. I'm trying to bring myself back to that that experience at the Acropolis again and ascending that ramp because in a way, what I imagine it must have felt like and what it must often feel like for people with disabilities when they encounter historical artifacts or spaces is a certain sense of orphanhood in in culture, in cultural history, insofar as the kind of not only lack of visibility of of disabled people in history, but even a lack of evidence of um, the kind of, albeit functionalist tools that enabled them to to exist in that period. And then, of course, a lack of, again, functional accessibility to the contemporary version of these monuments themselves. And I think the reason I'm bringing this up is because, to me, the although the frustration with functionalism as a kind of organizing principle for understanding disability through um, makes perfect sense. It's still, at least in my imagination, has quite a hold on the way that I understand the disabled experience. And of course, it's totally hypocritical uh, because I'm not physically impaired. Um, But at the same time, the descriptions of these experiences uh, which are in a way functionalist descriptions, they afford me a certain empathy with this situation. I mean, another example are the protests that were held in the 1990s on the steps of the Capitol in Washington, which you describe in some detail, uh, where people with physical impairments um, would get out of their wheelchairs or drop their crutches and drag themselves up the steps. This is prior to the passing of the Disabilities Act. And other examples of disabled people taking sledgehammers to the curbs uh, to make their own curb cuts and leaving their own historical relics. And to me, these kinds of actions um, are functionalist ones. But at the same time, (laughs) at (laughs) at the same time, they're incredibly potent emotionally and politically. Yeah, I think, okay, so, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I apologize. No, no, that's it. You got my blood pressure raised, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, I, okay, so someone my age was, and who, who I lived not too far from DC, was invited to participate in the Wheels of Justice rally, which is what the ultimately became the Capitol Crawl, that famous event. Now, I decided not to participate because of shame and fear. Mm-hmm. So that event, I, you know, as somebody who knows that, about myself. I, I know that the people that participated in that event also had to overcome ideas about shame and fear to pull themselves up those stairs. So that so that event, which I think is 1990, I think it just had its anniversary. It was just a few days ago. I mean, the anniversary of it was just a few days ago. Um, that event um, was about a lot more than just, I, you know, here I'm, I'm dragging myself up a series of steps to show that this building is inaccessible to people. 
because it doesn't have ramps or elevators. Let me get back to that one second. It's a, it was a very much about like people contending with very public, particularly American ideas about who should feel um, ashamed about their body in public and who's 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 um, who's represented as the public in the first place. It was, a, it was a really interesting event. It's also very multiracial, which was very unusual in the history of disability um, actions like that. And it had veterans and people like me that were cancer survivors, people with MS and CP, you know, a, a wide range of participants. The other thing that's so ironic, not ironic about the event, the organizers knew this because they had spoken at the Capitol many times. Was, the Capitol building was actually one of the most accessible buildings at that time in DC. It's one of the first multi-story buildings in DC to have a fleet of elevators. I mean, as you know, most congressmen and senators, are, they're old. <laughs> they don't want to walk upstairs. So that event was much more than about like the Capitol building was inaccessible because it wasn't. It was about um, ideas about um, what disability, disabled people's places in the public. So, and that has nothing to do with function. So, um, but by demonstrating the, um, the tensions between their body, their, the way they move, those people move, and the way that, um, and those staircase, they definitely highlighted that, you know, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's, that was a part of it, but not the only part of it. Yeah. I want to move now to this subject of the aesthetics of disability. Okay, yeah. Which, as a former architect myself, and as someone who's drawn to design and art and the culture of the built environment as well has a particular resonance, but it's also something I acknowledge is incredibly difficult to actually talk about. And I mean, on the subject of the aesthetics of disability, it seems like for you, there's a real ambition to find ways to somehow reflect incapacity in the world around us through aesthetic means. And so, I mean, there's an example that you bring up, and this is in the, in the chapter on, um, on nature or uh, of a weaker nature, as it's called. And um, you bring up this example by the landscape architecture practice West 8, who designed a landscape in Madrid's Park Rio, where they selected um, only the gnarled pines to create a kind of alley of trees. And all the pines, because of their state, um, they're all kind of bent and distorted. They're basically the rejects that you wouldn't typically select for a public realm project. They're all supported by these truncheons, these kind of- Like crutches. Like these crutches. crutches, yeah. They're all kind of leaning on these supports. And there's a whole, um, there's a whole kind of grid of them. I just wonder if you could Talk more about that scheme as an example of how we can begin to discuss an aesthetics of disability and what it means to to produce work like that. Yeah. Also, that example is a great um, example of, um, let's say, the preservation or conservation of disability. So I don't know um, Adrian Goes, who's the um, principal of West State, but I saw him lecture a long time ago, about 14 years ago, at the California College of the Arts where I was teaching at the time. And he showed several projects that really had very sophisticated engagements with ideas about um, impairment. I was very impressed, it made a gigantic impression on me. In fact, I had just finished the book Subnature, it was too late to include that work in it, but I was like, wow, man, I should really, that's like exactly what I'm after in the book. 
Um, so yeah, so he, or the firm, sorry, was commissioned to do this really gigantic, um, very large um, urban project called Rio Madrid, which involved all kinds of work. Um, and so um, he, what he told, what I recall him saying at California College of the Arts is a little different than how he writes about it. But what I recall from the lecture was that um, he visited this site that had these trees that would have typically been destroyed um, for the use of street trees and nursery, I guess. And um, they were all very bent or gnarled, like you said, and he specified them specifically because he thought it would be um, a, you know, a, a provocation in um, an urban landscape design to, to plant things that were so obviously disfigured and then design these very bright red um, crutch-like um, truncheons, as you said, to hold them up. So, um, I mean, for me, when I look at a project like that, it relates back to some things we've been talking about, which is that I feel as if, um, Adrian and Westgate have really made a space for us to think about ideas about impairment, disfigurement, and public space in a way that you typically don't see, right? And the fact that it's not uh, representations of the human figure, but representations of nature, so important because, again, we're going back to themes we talked about, but you know how we imagine or produce nature is very much reflects the the larger values of. Um, of what we embrace in human society. See that in a city, particularly a city in like um, Madrid that has this history of um, fascistic interventions from the Franco period and the urban fabric, often relying on images of trees and strength and how, you know, the, how trees, particularly upright alleys of trees represent ideas about um, urban vitality and monumentality. To have this as a counterpoint was extraordinarily powerful. Um, I don't, you know, it'd be fun to sit here and think of other possibilities that build off of that particular example. Um, and none come to mind immediately, but I put that project in there just as a way to, to, to begin to illustrate what the conservation of disability might be like, or, or a nature, of, of a, or what I call a, a weaker nature, right? Mm. I felt hungry for more examples like that. And maybe it's simply that there aren't. There was one that to me felt conspicuously absent, which was uh, that OMA house, that Bordeaux house. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine yeah. you omitted that for a reason. I mean, I thought about including it. Um, well, first of all, you know, he never inhabited the house as far as I know. He died before it was completed. So it's really, uh, I guess that room is like a memorial to that that man, a very wealthy man who commissioned that incredible house. I mean, I think, well, I mean, this, the kind of image of the mechanized disabled person is something that the whole book tries to upend. So I, I am an admirer of OMA's work and of Cool House's career in particular. Um, but I don't, I think the, the, um, the image of disability that emerges in that house is one that's very familiar to me. And that and is one that um, as provocative as that house is, is one that I, I, want, I wanted to avoid and I want to take the book in different directions. So the book is not a critique of that house, but the, you know, the image of the, the motorized disabled person is, is very familiar to disabled people or disabled reader. And so I wanted to take them past that particular image. Yeah. I, I get to do like an architecture project like once every two or three years. So, you know, there's, 
I did a project with um, Brett Snyder, Irene Chang, and a, a large group of other people, including Georgie McClee, John Herman, um, Javier Bona, Chiplo, um, which we redesigned a, um, an area of Berkeley, California. And just as, as one of many contributors to it, I tried to bring in these ideas of a weaker nature. So um, we designed things that are somewhat reminiscent of that project, scaffolds for species of trees that don't typically survive well in the urban context, a, a wading pool that crosses property lines and um, you know, introduced um, kind of different ideas about swimming in public than typically see. Um, so yeah, but there's, you know, there's certainly possibilities to explore these ideas more than by others. Hmm. And as a way of drawing the discussion to a close, we need to focus on practice and what it means to start to apply the ideas you explore in the book into work that enters the real world and affects people in real ways. How, how do you see the afterlife of this book? What what would you hope for it to do in terms of its influence on the built environment? Yeah, I mean, in the U in the U.S. context, which I know the best, I mean, we have, you know, I think, you know, the terms that, you know, we have to figure out how to make alliances between other people that are trying to change practice from other perspectives or combining perspectives. And I, I think, you know, the central, the central, theme in all this work is representation. So for example, when I go to a firm and they ask me like, how can we use this book? You know, the first question they might ask themselves is like, you know, how many people do they hire? Are they really even open to hiring? Or what are their thoughts when they hire somebody who is like really serious impairments and comes in for an interview? Like, how do they feel about that? You know, to bring this back to some themes we talked about, you know, I, you know, I was very, I was a very successful architecture student. Okay, I, I won awards, I had a good portfolio, but and I, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything, but God knows I walked into a lot of big and very famous architecture firms with a very serious lamp, or in one case I rolled in on a chair. So, you know, I, I have no idea what those principals thought when they wanted, thought about hiring somebody like me or what it'd be like to have somebody like me walk into a meeting with a corporate client but I think, you know, like anything, it's about representation and it's also about getting over your own hangups. And I think if anything, you know, those who are in a position of power and are disciplined really need to think about like who they cultivate and let into the spaces where architecture is practiced. That's the most important thing. And then of course, you know, um, I really admire architects who are willing to um, reach out and extend past their comfort zone and take on projects that deal with this particular topic and they, you know, and, um, and, 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 yeah, and, and find ways to have consultants or, or people like myself or others be involved in the projects that they're developing. Um, and then I guess, you know, finally, I'll just say is that once you take that step and you, let's say you're a, a dean of a school or the head of a firm and you have more disabled students and faculty practitioners and interns in your office, you really begin, they'll begin to, as you know, depending upon how comfortable they are and the position they're in, they'll begin to point out some things that you probably haven't noticed before about your institution, about the way it operates, about your firm, the way it practices, which I think are really important and are great, you know, additions to the culture of architecture. So. David, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It was really, um, I really appreciate it. Like I said, your, your deep reading of the book, I really, it really means a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah.
Well, thank you so much for your work and for this book. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word on social media and leave a rating on iTunes. It really helps the show reach a wider audience. Thanks to David Gisson. Thanks, as always, to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.